As we move towards bringing children back to school, we must ask who was worst affected by the pandemic and why. Decoding Exclusion, an interview series by the Vithi Center for Legal Policy, aims to discuss the various facets of the problem of exclusion in education in India. With a range of experts in the field of law, policy and education, we examine evidence on new sites of exclusion and ways in which we can support children and their households as we bring them back to school. Welcome to Vidhi's Decoding Exclusion, an interview series where we break down the various facets of exclusion from mainstream education in India. I'm Nisha, and I lead the Inclusive Education Vertical at the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy. And in today's episode, I'm in conversation with Madhukar Banerjee, founder and director of Leadership for Equity, an organization that aims to create effective public education systems through building the capacity of government system leaders in partnership with local and state education bodies. In today's conversation, we discuss the range of work that LFE has been involved in, especially their focus on socio-emotional learning and how it can be scaled in India. We discuss the various pervasive problems that states face in addressing the issue of -of out-of-school children, including how we must reform the way we track children and the entitlements they receive from cradle to career. Most interestingly, Madhukar talks about how contrary to popular belief, Mid-level state leaders do not lack the autonomy to make decisions that can affect change. Rather, he suggests, they lack the capacity to effectively make those decisions. And this is the missing link that organizations like LFE are dedicated to. Any conversation with Madhukar is an opportunity to learn from his tremendous experience. So let's jump right into the episode. Thanks, Nisha, for having me. So uh, I'll I'll just get started uh, with some of the questions that we've thought of. Um, so you know, uh, leadership for equity during the pandemic was doing a lot of sort of um, response work uh, with sort of you know meeting the needs of children. Um, and one of the areas that I think that you all were focusing on, correct me if I'm wrong, was sort of on social emotional learning specifically. Um, And I think this is something that while a lot of people were speaking about the need for that, I don't think most of us had the expertise to actually try and address that at such short notice, right? Um, So can you tell us a little bit about this? Who were the kinds of stakeholders you were working with and um, yeah. No, thanks. Uh, Thanks, Nisha, for setting the context. So I think as you rightly said, a lot of what uh, we did when the COVID um, hit, um, I mean, like like the entire sector and like everyone together, we were uh, uh, we were all trying to figure out, right, like what is the best course of action. So I think all of there was a lot of hustling in terms of what needs to be done, a lot of pivoting. But I think one thing we said was, uh, especially given our long term focus of the organization, let's just try, try and focus on really what are the issues when it comes to education and not pivot completely to more relief work. So I think after the first wave uh six to seven months down the line we in fact did a quick dipstick survey in december 2020 and i think our entire team went into the communities villages and rural and tribal parts of uh, maharashtra and we tried to understand really what are the challenges why are certain uh thing what are certain things that the state feels like these are the initiatives that we are taking are they reaching to the ground what are some of the issues that are happening with when it comes to education so i think that was really an eye-opener and i think one of the big things of course education was it we all know the studies there have been numerous studies that are published right so i'm not going to go into that but i think one of the key issues wherever we went, in fact, starkingly after this was, we we're talking about December 2020, after like uh, a good seven, eight months of uh, COVID hit and school closure, a big spike, huge spike in 
the parents reporting anxiety you know in children stress in children um a lot of uh, you know different behavioral shifts when it comes to like getting restless some of these aspects became big problematic for even because parents did not have the ability to have children 24/7 with them right and i think that really started questioning around uh, you know putting questions to the educators around what is the kind of uh, challenges that families are facing mm. and that's when this whole idea of social emotional uh, learning and needs uh, came into uh, picture so i think like uh, it it took us of course it didn't come there where many organizations were talking about it for a long time but literacy numeracy comes very naturally for education organizations and not when you think of really well being of children right so yeah. i think that really and then like then the question became the larger takeaway and i think from this piece of survey that we did was whether the system in itself was ready to implement any sort of social emotional learning kind of uh, uh, programs or even support to the children at scale we're not talking about like a one village or hundred okay. problem of india has always been at scale so i think how do you is is the system ripe enough to be able to take that so that was a larger sort of a question and the learning that we've had when we did this sort of uh, dipstick survey right and sorry what what is the answer we reached on that are we ready are we able we were, at least in 2020 we were and everyone acknowledged that there was something like this happening right. the system when i say system it's about you know teachers the yeah. parents and something in the machinery or policy makers trying to make sense that you know this is also a big need apart from just saying that there is learning loss right right absolutely um so another thing that uh, so one is firstly this idea of you know the the sort of doing a dipstick survey i think that's something that a lot of organizations as included um were maybe either unable to do or um you know we don't always do and i think we sometimes end up doing that the classic thing of sort of creating um not maybe creating but sort of ideating how we want to go about things from a very top down place right even though uh we you know at least we talk about being more ground up and this and that um but yeah so okay that that makes a lot of sense that you would let to something um maybe unique because you sort of went about it in that way uh but the other thing that i think has always been quite fascinating about lfe's approach is in um a sector where we see so many players focusing on the private organizations and private providers of education and of course during covid edtech was the sort of big thing that needed to be done um lfe has always sort of taken the approach of strengthening public education right and through building state capacity um so why was it important for you i mean maybe even you know since the beginning since its inception for you to work on this and then specific to during covid how did that kind of fare were you able to continue that yeah no i think great question a, a lot of uh, for us at least when we were starting up leadership for equity the founding team and roughly we come with from 12 to 15 years of uh, experience in education just having spent time within the classrooms and then working with schools and communities a big part of our understanding like some of the belief system really formed in those 10 to 12 years of when we were working on the ground and i think like one of the big beliefs that we operate uh, with even currently and that influences us to do the work that we do is uh, the understanding the problem of education in india and i think mm-hmm. we have by i mean this is, seems like a rhetoric for many people who have heard me but i think the problem of india is not a problem of a 
a hundred thousand or a ten thousand children it's a problem of millions right no matter even if today an organization says we are working with a million children the denominator is still 240 so whatever we are trying to do if we are not able to solve it for scale i don't think like we're moving the needle and i think this is something that i mean as a teacher i've spent my first few years in education as inside a classroom and this um, uh, thing always haunted me. Like, fine, it's great. I'm teaching a class of 30, 35 children. But what about, you know, 700 in my school and 70,000 in my city? Mm-hmm. That's one thing that that really sort of uh, shaped the way. The second piece of it is this idea of equity. Like, if you look mm-hmm. at at a meta level, really macro, what is the problem of education? There's roughly 115 million children who belong to the poorest of poor communities in India still continue to go to the government-run schools. Right. And as what we have achieved over the last 75 years after independence is basically a top 10-20%, right? Of And imagine the kind of potential that is still untapped in a country like India and where we can, when we talk about this 5 trillion economy, etc, etc. But till the time you don't tap into the bottom uh, of the pyramid uh, in terms of the reach of underserved, uh, we're not doing justice. So I feel like that from an equity lens and mm. you don't strengthen public schools and 800 plus governments are there in India, your district and state administrations, they are catering to these, they are supposed to deliver quality to these 115-120 million children, which they are not able to, in some ways they're succeeding, in many ways they're not. So I feel like if you are able to place our bets on those systems to be able to serve better, um, I think uh, we, we would have been, uh, you know, we, we will see the shifts in the way India is operating. So I feel these two beliefs really sort of pushed the basis of when we started our leadership for equity. And uh, again, studying a lot of these interventions, last two to three, three decades, several nonprofit organizations have invested crores and crores of money into mm-hmm. exactly the way language needs to learn, a lot of effort in pedagogy, the kind of material, and which was phenomenal, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think it's great. But I think what we need now, if you see, the ability of the governments to be able to deliver quality of at scale is limited. And you compare some of the system, probably, I'm not even saying education, you compare it with health, uh, sanitation, some of the big, big public, basic public services that, that happen, that should happen, compare it with the developed economies, foundation of strong public systems is always a base, uh, let it be transportation, you pick anything, right? It's mm-hmm. always think of your European countries or US or uh, wherever. And I think the uh, the but the ability to deliver that service relies a lot on this middle management, especially in a country like India. Mm-hmm. And those are extremely strong, sensitive, and effective in in uh, developed nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even to roll out simple thing like a vaccination, we know no matter how the policy is strong, till the time that last a health officer of that cluster or that block is not taking ownership to say that every you know, adult above 60 years is going to get vaccinated in my village or cluster, it's not going to happen. The same thing is with, uh, uh, you know, education. Mm. Closest uh, to the teachers and schools are your cluster officers, your block officers. Right. Oh, we have seen the anti-example also. Great programs are happening. But I think with a single stroke of pen, a block officer can shut the entire thing down, you know. So these guys have access to resources. They have the agency and power to do it. Mm. And we need to sort of tap into that. But one last thing of comparing it with the corporate also, a district in any, pick any district in India, it has an average of about 2,000 to 3,000 schools. Uh, A staff of about uh, 8,000 to 12,000 teachers, a single district in India on an average. Put it in a corporate lens. If there were 8,000 people company, what are the kind of qualities in a CEO that you are looking at? 
Mm-hmm. Now, you're expecting a district education officer to play that role. So what kind of skills and uh, sensitivity, the effectiveness and efficiency with which a DO should operate, which unfortunately is in there. Our IS officers in the top go to Harvards and Stanfords and Oxfords of the world, but your middle management doesn't get that kind of support. So I think right. that's where I think this ethos comes in and we place our bets on, on middle management. Right, right. No, so... um. One is in terms of, and maybe we can come back to this question about sort of what your experience has been working at these different levels um, of government, right? But um, an interesting thing that you sort of mentioned right now is uh, that this mid-level management that plays such a crucial role, they do in some sense have a certain amount of autonomy and agency to make decisions about how education is actually rolled out. And uh, and you also mentioned that they maybe have the resources to do that as well. Um, so th- this is interesting to me, maybe because I'm coming with, you know, not enough knowledge of how it works at that level. But during COVID, we saw so much conversation around, uh, you know, because essentially there were these central level decisions being made that the entire country will be shut down, the Anganwadi shut down first, all the schools shut down. And even in terms of reopening schools, um, you know, we largely heard it being a decision that was being made at the level of the state, right? And of course, there was some pushback, there were some districts and, um, you know, in villages and stuff where people were saying, no, we can already open or they were doing it sort of, you know, under the radar, perhaps. Um, and so a lot of the conversation that was happening was around, we need, uh, you know, a sort of middle level management, but also at the uh, level of the district at the level of the block, uh, to be able to sort of make decisions about when schools can reopen and how they will deliver, whether it will be hybrid or not. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I would be interested to sort of hear your take on that. Do we feel like we had that autonomy? Do we usually have it? You know, how important is that? Yeah, no, absolutely critical, right? I think the because again, as I said, each district is not small in India. Yeah. Right? With the U.S. district, they have 15, 20, 30 schools. We multiply that by 100 is where we have our districts, right? So, the in fact, when schools also reopened, right, after COVID, in a, I mean, we are coming a lot from like few, three or four states where we are working very closely with the administration. But I think in Maharashtra, a lot of the decision making was left to the collector. By the way, not just Maharashtra, across the country, mm. the state said the decision to open schools lies with the collector of the district. Mm. A lot of, the, because... Collector is the, the uh, you know, de facto head of the disaster management uh, committee. So they took the decision. So I think like mm-hmm. some districts opened late, phased based on the number of cases, etc. The framework was given by the state. Center yeah. have even have a role. I think everything was left to the state when it was uh, opening, right? Yeah. So even in the districts, what we saw was the, those villages. So I think the owners then fell from a district to blocks to villages saying, yeah. those villages where there are no cases, like what is stopping us from opening? In fact, like we had seen, I mean, you won't believe some of the schools we have seen was throughout, they were open during COVID. They never shut. They did not even shut a single day, even during COVID, primarily because the local authorities, mm-hmm. the local governance, because especially in a country where the Gram Panchats, you have a lot of uh, autonomy of people representation, like they were able to take a decision on their own saying that we're going to, you know, keep them open because we feel there's no case in COVID inside the whole village. Why should we even shut it down, right? Why should the education stop? Right. So I think the, the and we saw a bunch of examples around that. So I feel uh decision making to reopen the schools, in fact, was left a lot. It was heavily decentralized and it came down to that cluster and, and the village level. 
ஒருங்கிங்ஸ்ட்ரிக்ட் in maharashtra like an example is nagpur in mm. division the you know amazing division commissioner sanjay ji he basically took the lead and whatever four five districts were under him he sort of uh, made sure all the programs were rolled out right from the division district level to the block level including the radio programs materials like some mm. of the when uh, he said that we're going to invest in print material especially to the tribal areas where nothing was reaching there's no technology yeah. no penetration of any mobile phone network so they said we're going to print out and give worksheets to children that was all done through dbdc funding which is a district planning commission fund which is the prerogative of which lies with the collector they yeah. wanted so i think like the all of those decisions for roll out of programs the way we were communications happened what needs to be done the covid duty was teachers were not just expected to do this they were playing several other roles inside the communities all of that happened at district level so this middle management where in fact they were the ones in which whatever now we think we are seeing the asar results were released yesterday yeah. so i think a lot of the we don't know i mean it's still abysmal to see the learning outcome but i think if these guys didn't play a role we don't know what would have happened right right so uh, my question would then be um because i think this is a little bit different from maybe some of the narrative we were hear- hearing at least in the initial days where we were saying you know it needs to be more decentralized so maybe that did actually in effect happen um but so then what would you say is maybe is there a need for greater support of this mid level management so that they can make these decisions more effectively so say even now when we're coming to the recovery you know we're in that recovery period we're trying to get children back to school um we do know a lot of them are you know maybe not enrolled even though recovery has started for a lot of age groups um so do we feel like there's a need to sort of support this mid level management more to be able to make more effective decisions and then how do we kind of do that absolutely and there's no question about it because the state and what center though i don't think has a extremely limited role to play in any of the education work that happens at a state but mm-hmm. even the state a lot of the frameworks around like what how to curb the learning loss right like we are talking about nipun bharat right now they fill in mission yeah. that's the, the roles and now i think with yesterday's results it's become even more important for us to focus yeah. on that uh 3 to uh sort of 8 uh, age group and the kind of learning gaps that we are talking about and all of the protocols and the guidelines if you see that the state is framing at least in maharashtra andhra where we are working closely with the states it's all saying till the time the diets the district offices do not take lead in that the nipun bharat mission is not going to be successful mm-hmm. but it becomes logical that we place our bets on the middle managers and strengthen them look at how the wax because see a great example of how uh, india as a country we respond to crisis was vaccination who could have imagined like two day in i mean polio took years yeah like i mean you talk about like a 100 uh, crore uh, vaccinations it yeah. was it wouldn't have been done without the numerous efforts of the grassroots workers but we did it i think the only thing there it was a life and death issue here we need to make it a life and death issue saying that in the time children uh, that that urgency to say that we have to shut everything down pick 6 months make sure that children are learning on the minimum learning levels 
but someone needs it. We need a lot of political capital to do it. But still, it happened. So I think it's not that we cannot do it. I think we can do it, but it 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 has to be done at the ground level. It has to be a ground up approach. Till the time we don't place bets on those district officials, those block and and uh, cluster officials, none of the education reform uh, can happen. Right, right. So um, you sort of mentioned that you worked in, a few, you know, you work in a few different states and LFE sort of has a presence in, I think you said three states, right? Um, and again, you're sort of working across different levels of government as well. So what is your experience been, I mean, even prior to COVID, but also during it? Um, and what do you see as some of the, you know, enabling factors to working within a state or working with the state? Yeah, I mean, there are obviously a lot of, uh, every state is different. And I think assuming that a lot of uh, context comes into play. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think even beyond that, there are certain trends and patterns that you see in terms of like what works for large scale uh, reform, right? Mm -hmm. Again, uh, my, this thing has always been to reform. The minute you talk reform, it needs to impact all children. Like the, otherwise, there's no point in doing that. Mm -hmm. So I think some of the things that we are seeing, at least uh, from, I mean, Maharashtra, of course, I think we've been working, we've been here for like six, seven years. Andhra, we just started working. We closely work with the World Bank. It's a hugely five-year World Bank reform project that is work that's happening in Andhra Pradesh. Mm -hmm. uh, and Tripura and uh, uh, Haryana, Tripura is much smaller state, very different again uh, in the Northeast. But I think some trends and patterns that you see across these demographies that actually true for any context. I think one where there is a combination of a strong political and administrative will, and this is a very, I mean, might sound cliched, but I think that is true. I, no matter how much you say that, you know, this is a great idea and this is going to change the landscape. We have worked with some research uh, organizations who did RCT and uh, showed us this is what it doesn't work that way. India, education is is not a technical problem it's a socio-political issue till the yeah. time we do not do not get the politicians the administrators on board to any reform agenda it's not going to work so i think those states where we are seeing a lot of political will andhra is a great example of course we've heard about yeah. the work that they're doing kerala is another example um andhra now i think is, has picked up a lot i think in terms of what they're doing and then you know right from a cm directive to say this is what needs to be done and education no other i mean it's very very clear what what mm. needs to be done. so i think like that strong administrative and political will combination is deadly for any sort of uh, sustainable uh, impact mm. uh, the second piece of it is the reform agenda has to be clear yeah it has to be absolutely clear right from the highest levels of uh uh, you know, public office to the lowest levels of people who are supporting teachers and uh, school systems. It cannot be vague uh, if it is learning improvement. And we have seen this in Maharashtra, right? Like the previous government here was very clear that whatever you do, we need to be in top three Nasser. That's all that came in from the CM and everyone sort of followed it. So mm -hmm. the reform agenda is much broader when it's like a lot of things to mm -hmm. then you becomes like a more of a kitchen to say that but it's like look like there's one learning agenda we have you know what is the change that we want to get so i feel like that is uh so open reform agendas are a problem and that's what we have seen the more targeted they are the more specific the more my uh you know few like say one two like if you say you know what infrastructure is here we're going to move here learning mm -hmm. is here we're going to move here just that in itself makes a lot of difference. So I think that's the second piece of it, just clarity in the reform agenda. And yeah. the third piece of it is, of course, just a few champions. You need champions who will sort of navigate 
all the uncertainty of plans uh, of uh, you know uh, the unions managing people all of this requires a few champions within the system so i think like where states where you have a couple of really good champions either politically or administratively right. states that are able to sort of at least for the initial kickoff you need a you need strong champions within the system so i think these three broadly i feel are, are some uh, you know enabling conditions hmm right and in terms of how these specific states that you were working in kind of fared during covid and again sort of coming back to that question of you know out of school children specifically um one is i mean i i do i'm we, you know we of course all understood that in the initial days especially of the pandemic when we didn't know what was going on um you know like you said there was some pivoting in terms of saying uh, we will maybe focus on some of the more important i mean urgent uh, relief uh, needs right of children so nutrition and health and everything became uh, prominent and then even once we said okay now education needs to take focus again uh there were a bunch of things that were sort of happening so i mean one of my questions is sort of where did this question of out of school children fare in terms of priority order um or at what point of time did it kind of come back into you know the agenda of the state in some sense and then what were the kind of constraints that these states were facing like how how did they sort of differ when it comes to this particular uh question of trying to bring children back to school yeah i mean the technically the aspect of out of school children as you said existed even before covid yeah. right it was not a uh, new issue after covid everyone was out of school so technically there were no schools schools were shut down so everyone was out of school but i think it started off when the, after the second wave i think later part of 2021 is when the schools started slowly opening up november 21 they started uh, slowly opening up and i think that's when people thought look now i think it's a reset uh, time right like uh, literally like everyone's out of school the schools were in there so whoever is there is out how do you sort of bring in uh, people back into school uh i think a lot of it was also driven by these low income private school segment because i think a significant chunk got shut down during covid because yeah. of the, and the kind of low uh, maintenance uh, uh yeah. the viability is also very weak for these guys right like the finance so they many shut down and i think because of which i think there was a de facto children went out of uh, school uh i think later part of 2021 is when a lot of efforts happened right i think mm-hmm. but i think it is also the realization of the parents i feel they started that you know we need to send children back it's been one and a half year it might be because even parents were also tired that you know we can't take care of the children at home but i think whatever happened happened and i think the it it be, i think i don't know if there was any quite honestly like i've never mm-hmm. seen a state which you know did this massive campaign about like bringing back children into school no one quite honestly did that like i think mm-hmm. there were decent efforts there were some uh, messages here and there you know by the political class or anyone but i think no state that i know of at least did any massive campaign uh, it organically happened and i think which mm-hmm. is a 40 years back if you had said that india whether they would have done it if covid happened 40 years back i don't know right how it happened which i think is a great thing because parents also saw that you know the importance of education and uh, all of that so i think post 2021 to 22 it didn't happen overnight right it took mm-hmm. a good 6 7 months till this academic year which is june july 2022 mm-hmm. at 6 to 8 months it took 
for children to be able to come back to school and whatever wherever and i think i mean i'm glad now that i can share because yesterday the uh, asar results came in uh, the numbers have not uh, drastically shifted if you see the out of school children numbers right from 20 they've been tracking right yeah for asar uh, results are seeing i mean i still we trust that data in a in a more way and there's the part of the policy conversations yeah you see there's no significant trip of out of school what has happened is the children who left the private school there's been a huge influx into the government that has happened yeah. now i think how do you retain them inside these government school systems is a larger question that all of us have but i think historically if you see the problem of out of school also i look at it in a different way because it's 95 or almost across the state if you see there's 90 95% on an average are inside school at least what they claim and even asar as a third party has also claimed it mm. now the problem with that uh, 5 to 8% majority even in maharashtra because i think we were studying this very very closely uh five six years ago mm-hmm. early belongs to the migratory communities many in the conflict sort of areas um uh, you know children in uh, urban areas where there's a lot of movement because of uh, specific work um, i think and there are certain particular categories even if you see like in maharashtra there's bricklin workers right who yeah. higher course and then there are these communities who basically go along with the migratory birds mm. uh, wherever the birds are the entire family sort of moves now that has historically be, been a problem and there's no i mean we do i don't know i mean we thought about a lot of things season loss and etc etc but i think it just doesn't work anywhere mm. and i haven't seen any great solution for that so i feel like that those are the category of people who belong to that 2 to 3 percent so there's nothing that anyone can do or i don't know if anyone has done anything around that who mm. always so anything beyond that anything more than 5% 7% is where the alarm bells should ring so i feel like because we always look at that 100% mark and want every child in school but i think this last 2 3% is a problem but out of school was a critical issue i think there mm. was a huge cry and uh, fear of dropout but here's my thing about it numbers speak they can also lie june 2023 is when i'm thinking that there has to be consolidation many states are considering a consolidation of right from your population figures to right. actually coming into school because have being on the master doesn't mean that the child is in school yes till the time that data doesn't come out i think all of the we can be happy about some of these numbers that the kids have come back and government enrollment is good but i still fear and this is deep down and i hope i'm wrong that there are huge number of children who've been left behind due to covid when we talk about the sort of um you know one is enrollment in schools and then that's what we record and then absenteeism is a whole other piece when it comes to measuring sort of out of school children right um and that is something that again i think different states kind of look at a little bit differently uh, so some say you know if a child is not in school for 45 days at a time some say a much smaller amount of like about 20 days or 15 days even uh, is when they sort of try to track these children and things like that um but i think that was one of the issues that we saw with the evidence that came out during covid which was sort of that um specifically say for example a child with a disability or a migrant child who couldn't access online education or where it wasn't uh, fully accessible to them you saw a lot of absenteeism right that was happening and um it was something that i don't think in because we haven't dealt with edtech maybe when it comes to actually measuring out of school children i think this is the first time that we've had to sort of consider needing to measure out of school children 
also through the lens of something like edtech right on like not physical schools so given this you know sort of sorry bunch of different points i'm trying to put together here but when you're talking about these you know trying to bring together this consolidated number um, or, or a more clear estimate i think one thing that we also struggle with as a country is that we don't know or we don't have a sort of um standardized way of estimating out of school children right because the way in which we track it differs uh who we miss out on i think we know largely that these are the groups we usually miss out so including migrant children um but then how to sort of fix that is something that we haven't figured out um so again when it comes to i mean i don't know if this is something that you you know worked with in some sense um but have you sort of seen how states try to address this and is that something where there is need for maybe i don't know like someone to sort of you know figure out how this needs to be measured or to come up with a standardized way to say this is how we need to consolidate these numbers at least for you know one moment we can have a clear picture and then move on from there yeah no absolutely and i think so many states do struggle and that's what i'm saying i think that's the thing about data right like it's so hard to sort of uh, i mean to your point around pratham's uh, results also yeah. data collection happened last year they just launched the result this year so by 2022 even if they started off the survey in like feb march april june what i mean migration might have happened even during mid year kids might have moved back so okay. june 2023 is when the real consolidation might should happen and i think the numbers should come in but the thing about out of school children and uh, the way we going to collect the data i think it's uh, completely i i again very few states are doing it only the smaller states have been able to do it to a certain extent because i think the geography is very limited and it's easier to sort of do even if you get a third party you can outsource it and say that you know what i think why don't you do a survey mm-hmm. but for bigger states it's still hard there is no standardized process there's no standardized metric on when you say out of school the uh, the continuum and there are no i mean i think the larger question is also this is 2023 and with aadhar and lot of the technology integrations in india we should be able to figure out the whole mapping of from a child being born to like a he or she getting employment i think it should all be tracked into one single sort of a unique id system yeah which no one has been able to do because your anganwadis asha workers are in place it's not like yeah. they are there's that machinery there's school education then there's higher education none of them speak to each other yeah i think that's the big problem and without those kind of mechanisms it's hard to even because on what basis are we seeing a child is out of school there's one question around that right like there are certain states define it as oh if if the child doesn't come uh on the you know to a particular school if he or she is enrolled but they don't come for like 6 months at a stretch then they are considered out of school but hmm. maharashtra defines it that way some other states might define so there's no common definition of what uh, we are yeah. saying out of school second piece of it is also how do we know how many are out of school with when there is a is there a mechanism to map that these many children were born in exactly. that village and how you sort of mapping it how is one child whether he or she is tagged on to one village because earlier back 30 40 years back it was all easy right because a village yeah. see in the village it is no more true the minute as someone is born you might get out of the village and for work or something so till the time those issues are there there's no sort of a by the minute someone is born is there a mechanism to track that child there is unfortunately none till the time that root cause isn't solved no matter how many surveys we're going to do it is still going to be necessary. i mean i have a slightly 
myopic view in this thing but i think that's the way i look at it because it's a problem of really inter department sitting together and brainstorming at how can we sort of track if you can track the number of scooters and cars in india then <laughs> and cows in some states i don't know why we can't figure out human beings right so i think like it's bizarre to even think that we talk about this so i feel like the foundation problem is there it is not a problem of a policy or you know statisticians will come yeah. in not a problem i think even sitting here we can work out the math and say that estimated itna itna numbers rahega but that's not going to be helpful you know yeah right right absolutely okay so um i guess my my sort of next question coming back to the idea of you know strengthening state capacity right and maybe where um where that where the state sort of requires resources and capacity to be able to address this question um so what do you think the state should prioritize when it comes to this question of out of school children or maybe even in education more broadly maybe you don't think that the problem of out of school children like you said right if the if we're sort of getting numbers around that 95% mark maybe that's not the most urgent problem now in terms of recovery so where do you think the state should be sort of prior, prioritizing efforts of recovery um and what kind of capacity do you think they need to be able to do that i think it's just data yeah if you ask me if you just one single piece that needs to be fixed uh, in at least large states it's just the way data is being managed the ability for the states the middle management to be able to look at data and make sensible decisions mm-hmm. is where the real capacity gap is i think ek to at, at one level like the mis systems or the data capturing mechanisms to do this is is weak so i think one has to fix that governance piece when it comes to like uh, uh children uh integration of across birth to sort of uh, you know um cradle to career spectrum what they call right like i think that spectrum needs to be clear when it comes to data mm. one is there a mechanism to sort of where systems are talking to each other and the second once those mechanisms are in place the ability to be able to sort of look at that data and make simple uh sensible decisions i think right who at the core of it i think are the big big issues right now i mean you to uh, look at even the banking system how much we have moved further like the health system like covin app was a great example like the yeah. did it like it's not like everyone was so tech savvy people struggled many rural people struggled but they still we still were able to do it and i just don't understand why we can't do it in such a big uh, human uh, indicator system i yeah anyway i think that's a, but 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 that i feel is the single most thing simple systems that are able to sort of drive Uh, again if your goal of reform agenda is very clear mm. people who are decision makers at that level need to know even if you see the way adoption systems like the cara adoption system mm-hmm. were left and abandoned and you know that has been streamlined very nicely it's of course very laborious to adopt a child right now in india but the way they have been able to do nutrition poshan aahar right like that again is a very great example so i think we just need to figure out and sit like what are some of those two or three pieces that that will help the decision makers at a again a block cluster and a district level to be able to make the decisions i think right if one people of course there are many things i'm just simply oversimplifying it but if if i had to place if i had 100 rupees i would place like 95 on that that's what i'm trying to say yeah <laughs> that's quite a strong uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um okay so uh given you know everything that you just said what is lfe's sort of focus with respect to education and sort of well-being um you know currently but also in the sort of near future yeah 
So a few months back, or oh, not a few months, I think it's been more than a year now, I think we did this research study with uh, Brookings, the so mm. Brookings Center for uh, Universal Education. So we were the research partners in India, where we did, uh, they released this playbook of uh, family engagement uh, for child yeah. development. So we worked with Rebecca and team, and it was just a wonderful experience for us. Um, uh, I think just the way we are looking at parental engagement in education, not just again literacy numeracy, but I think just the overall development of child, yeah, right from your birth to like eight years, which is a foundational stage, I think will be a key focus for us to understand. Like not not that we are going to directly work with parents, that that we are never going to do that. I think for us, our strength is working with the governments to be able to bring this into focus, lobby for such kind of policies, so uh, mm-hmm. which. We, you know, family engagement into being. But I think that's been a sort of a big, big uh, uh, area. And I think that that will continue a, as a, as an area for us. Um, second thing when it comes to education is also just this is uh, what we call as teacher's time on task. I think like what is the amount of time that the teacher is spending inside the classroom for what activities and uh, uh, classroom transactions is something that we need to sort of push. We always talk a lot about, you know, great curriculum, great TLM. Fine. I mean, though, not that they're not important. They're very, very critical. A lot of work has already gone in. We know what is the best way to deliver pedagogy. But I still feel that the time we do not measure and map teachers' time on task, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's going to be hard. So within a classroom, what even if I say, oh, that, fine, the teacher has been there. It's, the teacher being present in itself is problem for some uh, states but i'm saying teachers inside the classroom what is a teacher doing at what time so i think for that also we're working with the world bank and they have this research-based tool called the teach tool which now we are sort of trying to uh which which maps really uh, irrespective of what language or whatever you're teaching uh this tool really measures the uh classroom transactions that happen and then uh so we are trying to sort of now uh roll it out across the state of andhra pradesh and we're helping a couple more states to do that as a part of this. Uh, that, so that's another, again, data coming in. But I think really the question about data is also what is that you're measuring? So the time yeah. on task and how do you sort of improve it? So that's the yeah. second thing uh, in terms of our focus of all the uh, things that we are uh, sort of doing. Uh, social emotional well-being, again, the SCL uh, is a big, big thing. Not that, again, we are going to do it or anything. But this way, I've now clubbed it as how do you make it a part of the Nipun Bharat. Nipun Bharat talks about social emotional learning apart from literacy and numeracy. Like, how do you sort of make social emotional well-being integrated rather than being a separate thing? Because I know many states have done it as like another curriculum, as another thing. That most of the times doesn't work. Unless it's highly controlled in like a 1,000, 2,000 school network. But when Mm. you're talking about the 60, 70,000 school networks of states, it is hard. Teachers will always see it as another thing that they're teaching, right? I mean, I've been a teacher. If someone asked me, Ki, ye curriculum padha do, I would have been like, yeah, you're taking away my time from something. So that, how do you sort of then integrate SCL, make it a priority along with the Nipun Bharat is the third big priority that we are sort of seeing when it comes to just sort of education and um, well-being of uh, children. And the last piece of it is just, and we constantly sort of uh, push this in our work is just... Uh, uh, strengthening teacher uh, development and support in a more decentralized way. Okay. We know the last point of delivery is teacher. No matter how many tech tools you bring in, you cannot replace a teacher. Mm-hmm. So then make teacher, how do you support teachers? Because the, the way systems and this is what we have learned is that it's not linear. Uh, if there is anything linear, it is that we always say, oh, the teachers are not treating the children well, but it is a reflection of how the system is treating a teacher. So system... Right. 
continuously curses teachers they dis this you know uh, they they don't encourage them they just keep discouraging them they uh, do all sorts of things with the teachers which are not conducive the teacher is going to treat the children the same way and it's a yeah. direct reflection but to support a teacher it's a lot more complicated so i think like the time is decentralized and localized in yeah. such teacher development support and mentoring uh, your innovations at a school and a classroom levels cannot excel so i think like these are the four sort of key pieces that we are when we are looking at a systems change lens that we feel that uh, uh, will be good for us to learn not that we have answers for everything but i think we are also learning on the way right right so i mean this this piece on parental engagement i think something that i sort of missed asking you about altogether but during covid again especially i think um not that we didn't already know that this is a very important piece especially from even an equity standpoint right there's enough evidence to sort of point to parents needing to be sort of supported to be able to support their children as well and their education um and i think covid really became like an eye opener in terms of how much we maybe have neglected that um especially with like maybe even in the early years right because uh, um anganwadis i guess do some sort of or at least try to in their curriculum do some sort of interaction with parents and uh but that's something that we don't sort of do in a very structured way um the uh a question about the sort of teachers time on task thing does this also you know coming from a sort of policy perspective and recently i think tamil nadu sort of passed that uh, you know a, a new provision saying that i think it was tamil nadu i will cross check that but yes. saying that teachers uh, oh telangana was it andhra 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 okay <laughs> right andhra that makes sense uh, basically saying that you know teachers won't be involved in sort of administrative yes. uh, work yeah so i mean that seems to be i mean such a simple thing but almost revolutionary right because for so long i think there's again so much evidence on how much time gets spent on these non educational not even ancillary to education kind of tasks so right. was that something lfe was involved in advocating for in andhra i mean we obviously are we're working we are working for one and a half year but i think it was truly the champions within the system who saw that we completely endorsed it when the idea came up that this is something that they had to do we completely you know we said we in fact gave additional research to support like right. you know, that is what is going to be a game changer right i think the resolution is passed everything is there in paper how it needs to be in action i think uh, we'll need to be seen in the come days to come yeah no for sure because as in they they were sort of citing who would probably take on those tasks but we know how many how many roles teachers play in the current system right so um yeah it will be interesting to see but i hope it sort of precedents for what other states can also do yes, to sort of really teachers of um yeah because i i remember uh, you know i mean from when i first started sort of working in the education sector um i was working um with like teachers we were doing sort of interviews and i remember they uh, like a bunch of teachers cancelled interviews on one day that we had set up and when we sort of asked them why i mean we just assumed they were you know busy and that's fair but it was because they were called to some um sort of event that a politician was holding and there wasn't enough of a crowd and they were being called to sort of put on shirts and make it seem like there was a crowd for the media and i think that was just the most egregious version of this that i had ever experienced and still like you know sort of sits with me and similarly i think sometimes some foreign prime minister was visiting a city and then you know you had teachers sort of lining the roads to cheer for them and things like that and it was just like um 
yeah, like I think the most upsetting version of administrative work sort of taking up their time. Um, but okay, so when you, uh, sorry, my question was when you're talking about sort of time on task, this is an aspect of it as well. Absolutely. I think reducing the administrative workload, I yeah. think a lot of it is again, going back to MIS, right? Every time, like, why do you need how many kids, how many female, male children, how many minority, SC, Muslim, etc.? It has to be available. It's 2023. One click, everyone should know that. You know, you don't need to keep asking for that data. Yeah. So redundant data takes up a good 30% of teachers' time. And there's a lot of uh, studies that are there. Every time, like, why, why do you need, right? I mean, it's not like every day a new child is joining. Fine, there yeah. are some that might be once in six months, this data might change. But I think to be asking all of this information again and again is where the teachers. What also happens is many of these officers who are just on top of a teachers are not tech savvy. They generally become mm. officers at a later age. So they then pull in some teachers who are young and smart with using Excel sheets and all of that to make the mm. get. You know. So all of these things just take time. And I'm always like you build a tool as simple as a WhatsApp. That's how such simple tools need to be. WhatsApp, there's no one who taught WhatsApp to all of these uh, old uh, officers. Even for our for our grandparents, even if you see our family, his parents and grandparents, they learned it on their own. No one yeah. taught you to use something, you know. So I think like those are some things that I think need to be looked at there. Because there's a lot of human element in how this reform needs to happen. It just purely yeah. cannot be technical. So I think how do you integrate some of those human elements of change, behavioral change and bring about is where the real challenge is. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, okay, so I'm I'm just going to sort of um, maybe conclude this conversation with one question that I hope, you know, is more sort of reflective for us as in for me um, and uh, our team over here. But um, so, you know, during COVID-19, again, uh, we did see a lot of organizations were able to sort of do uh, work that was maybe more responsive. You spoke about doing a sort of dipstick survey and then, you know, meeting some of those needs that kind of arose through that, right, through those conversations. Um, but, you know, you've been in this sector for a long time. You maybe have an idea of what a lot of the other organizations were doing as well. As sort of researchers, practitioners, you know, who are, who've been in this sector, we're passionate about education. Where do you think we sort of dropped the ball during COVID, right? Given that it was all like, what could we have done better? Maybe better way of phrasing it. But, um, you know, given that we we all wanted to help, we, of course, were in a position where we all felt very helpless, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, what, what do you think our role sort of is in a situation like this or should be rather? I mean, if you if you want a response in the past, I really don't think there's anything anyone could have done. This was a moment in the history of the world where uh, unprecedented and no one expected that there's going to be something like this where every so everyone was helpless. We were all running around like headless chickens, at least in our own homes, trying to figure out what we could have done in our own locus of control. But if you ask me, in hindsight, also I I always think about this. Is there? I mean, even as people running organizations and education organizations, there was a lot of uh, this emotional pressure on us. You know, at some point, I think it was a wee bit survival was a key back in 2020, 21. It was a very hard period for many of us. Yeah. And when we think back on this question of really, could we have done anything different? I, my answer is nothing. No yeah. one could have. No one could have done anything different. And I think if we are hard on ourselves, if we are asking that question, I think what would be a better question to say that after one year of wave one, wave two of the COVID pandemic, is there anything we could have done better? 
Then my question is, yes, I think a lot of the thought process was built during the first three to four months. We had clear indication of what would have happened. There was a lot of research and policy evidence, some of these uh, um, uh, crisis evidence uh, from the yeah. past, How you know, especially during wars and all, what eventually happens. Uh, it was like a situation like that. We could have better served the most uh, underserved communities. And I think as a country, we could have done better. Let it be the migrant, let it be conflict areas, tribal children, more of those, uh, uh, you know, people in those areas, children in those uh, areas. I think some sort of a quick pivoting could have happened. Uh, and this is as a society. I don't think just as, a, you know, as researchers or educators, but I think everyone had a limited voice, you know, the, it was just mad everywhere. But I think that section who were most vulnerable, I think could have been protected could have been uh, safeguarded and, and catered to in a much better way. Uh, and I feel uh, that is something that we might have dropped the ball after maybe one, two years after the pandemic. Uh, but I I wouldn't say when pandemic hit, I don't think there's anything anyone could have done better. Right. No, no. Fair enough. I think it's just one of those uh, questions that at least like, you know, being sort of young in this space, I feel like I constantly sort of question what our role should be. Um, right. And I mean, I guess that's a general question that happens, you know, every Monday, sort of. But, but then especially, we are prepared now. Now we know if anything hits, we are we know now. Now you do not have a choice. If you say twenty twenty five, another pandemic is going to come, then we do not. Then we need to ask this question. Now we know what would happen. So I think like uh, it's like I mean, it's like saying someone nuked India. We really don't know what. Yeah. <laughs> Because we are not there. That's what history is made. So Right, right, right. No fair. Um, but okay, so I think that sort of broadly, um, those are all the questions that I sort of had. Um, any anything else you'd like to add, Madhukar, before I relieve you from this conversation? No, no, no. I think wonderful conversation. I think uh, because I think we're moving so fast, even post-pandemic, just to make sure that we are catching up on the last two, three years. I think Yeah. In a while, it's good to sort of uh, look through and imagine what went on in 2020-21 uh, because it was very different. I feel like we came from another world and just jumped into 2023. So I feel uh, it's it's good to sort of uh, take a step back and, and reflect on the on what were the thought process at that point in time. That meant again, eventually all of this is for us to help us uh, react, uh, respond, not react, maybe respond better when <laughs> hopefully not, God forbid, if we... Yeah. But yeah, no, thank you. Thanks, Nisha. I think a wonderful conversation. This podcast is produced by the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy under the Kota Karma Vidhi Inclusive Education Program. The Kota Karma Vidhi Inclusive Education Program is a CSR initiative by Kotak Mahindra Bank Limited. This podcast is based and born from Vidhi's report, Clearing the Air, a synthesized mapping of out-of-school children during COVID-19 in India. This report is produced under funding received from Voltas Limited as part of their CSR initiative. Video design and editing by Asad Ali, illustration by Hitesh Sonar.